The episode of Sinobabble that you're currently listening to is actually a video. If you'd like to watch the video, please head over to Sinobabble.com or head over to our YouTube channel, which is also called Sinobabble. I hope you enjoy this episode. In March 2018, at a meeting of the 2,980 delegates of the National People's Congress, a vote was passed to abolish the two-term limit on the presidency and vice-presidency of the People's Republic of China. The 10-year limit, which had been in place for around 30 years, was initially put in place by Deng Xiaoping, ostensibly to prevent the build-up of a cult of personality that had heavily contributed to the tragedies perpetrated under Mao Zedong's leadership. While the title of President of China has been considered largely ceremonial in the past, and some politicians such as Deng Xiaoping have managed to hold power without such a title, this change to the constitution has been considered to be monumental across the board. We've seen this sort of move with Vladimir Putin, with Erdogan in Turkey, these tweaks that allow these leaders to stay in their position. Uh, yeah, this, this is further proof that this is Xi Jinping's China. There's absolutely no uh, doubt about that uh, at this point moving forward. It's quite obvious a step backwards, and I do believe that this generates resentment uh, within the party leadership, among the intelligentsia, because they are concerned with the potential of a return of the Maoist style of leadership. While this change could well be considered a step backwards for China's politics and governance, I don't think it should be considered so unexpected or even so drastic a move. It could even be considered a return to tradition. In this video, I want to look at the following questions. What exactly gave rise to this motion, and why, with only the smallest of resistance, was it passed? How big of a role does Xi's cult of personality play, and is Xi really the new emperor of China? To answer these questions, we first need to understand how China has been ruled in the past, and how this pattern of governance has influenced present-day China. Let's put the decision to end presidential term limits in China in its historical context. One of China's earliest historical records tells the story of the defeat of the Shang dynasty in the 11th century BC by the Zhou dynasty. The rulers of the Zhou dynasty believed that what had allowed them to overthrow the Shang and what had allowed the Shang to overthrow the Xia dynasty before them was a philosophical and political concept known as the Mandate of Heaven. The basic doctrine is as follows. An emperor should govern well and be a good ruler, which will please the heavens. This means enacting virtuous and moral conduct, as well as guaranteeing the virtuous and moral conduct of bureaucratic officials. The conduct of the emperor means that he is responsible for the livelihoods and rights of citizens. Any bad conduct will lead to the heavens sending messages, for example, floods, earthquakes, diseases, and rebellions, to warn the ruler that they should mend their ways or face downfall. Though the mandate itself is conferred by the heavens, it is conduct in the mortal realm that matters. The Confucian scholar Shunzi once said, The king is a boat and the people are water. Water can carry the boat and overturn it too. The emperor was thus part of a symbiotic relationship, whereby if he failed to prevent chaos at the lowest levels, eventually that chaos would rise up and overthrow him. Another saying goes, Heaven is high and the emperor is far away. 
which on the one hand conveys the limited impact of the emperor on the daily lives of the people, while at the same time conveying how mistakes made by the emperor can quickly lead to trouble. If people are able to get on with their lives in peace, then they don't really care who's in power in the capital, hundreds, possibly thousands of miles away. If the people are plagued by roving bandits, constant droughts, or are suffering from famine, then suddenly the role of the emperor is brought much closer to home, and heaven no longer seems so high. In modern terminology, this concept is known as performance legitimacy. In the Maoist era, legitimacy was not based upon state accountability, but rather ideology, the cult of personality, and to an extent, state terror. It was only after Mao, under the guidance of Deng Xiaoping, that the idea of performance-based legitimacy re-entered the Chinese political scene in force. The legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party since the early 1980s has essentially been derived from its ability to guarantee economic growth and improvements in the standard of living for the majority of the population. If too much corruption seeps into the system, or people feel that they're being shortchanged or left behind, then they start to threaten the whole system, which is what we see when we analyse something like the Tiananmen Square incident of 1989. In the 90s, this train of thought was continued by President Jiang Zemin's Three Represents, which stated that the CCP must always represent the development of China's advanced forces of production, the orientation of China's advanced culture, and the fundamental interests of the overwhelming majority of the Chinese people. In other words, the economic and material development of China underpins the legitimacy of the communist government, allowing the emperor's boat to stay afloat without being capsized by the sea of people. If we fast forward to the modern day, we can see how Xi Jinping's methods of maintaining legitimacy follow those of his predecessors, only a small minority of whom have actually had their terms limited. It comes as no surprise then that Xi can terminate presidential limits with virtually no opposition, as long as he is able to act as the next good emperor at the head of the CCP dynasty. In other words, by guaranteeing an increase in standard of living for the people, as well as protecting them from both internal and external calamity. The way he has achieved this thus far is by instituting his own ideology, the Four Comprehensives, which map almost directly onto the principles laid out in the Mandate of Heaven. The pledge to build a moderately prosperous society by 2020 shows his devotion to guaranteeing the rights of the people. His plan to deepen reform is essentially a plan to stave off natural and man-made disasters by continually improving China's global economic and political power. The promise to govern the nation according to law reflects Xi's virtuous side, while his other promise to tighten party discipline shows that he is also willing to ensure the morality of the Communist Party as a whole. So how exactly does Xi enact this ideology in reality? To answer this question, we're going to take a look at two of Xi's long-term policy objectives. The first is the Belt and Road Initiative, and the second is the anti-corruption campaign. The Silk Road Economic Belt and 21st Century Maritime Silk Road, more commonly known as the Belt and Road Initiative, links together 60% of the world's population and around a third of global GDP. The main focus is currently on infrastructure investment, with plans ranging from building high-speed rail links between nations to direct investment in countries' energy systems. 
Predictions show that the Belt and Road Plan has the potential to reduce global shipping times by 1.2% on average, while also contributing to an overall reduction in the cost of trade by road, sea and rail. It's also predicted to lead to a GDP increase of 2.6 to 3.9% in developing East Asian and Pacific countries linked to the Silk Road, such as Malaysia, Vietnam and Cambodia. The plan is much more than an investment scheme, however. It also includes plans to forge political, economic, cultural and even physical ties. Some have branded this scheme a new form of imperialism, while China argues that their scheme will allow for the participation and mutual benefit of developing nations. However, the extent to which the initiative really benefits other nations is hotly contested. Chinese firms have currently won around $340 billion worth of construction bids abroad, undermining the idea that China is trying to encourage growth in foreign markets. Instead, it seems like China is trying to protect Chinese companies by giving them an outlet for excesses at home. By building economic corridors with other countries across vast regions, China also ensures that it has direct access to these markets, while simultaneously forcing these areas to open up and change their policies to allow for the development of this initiative or risk losing out on potential growth opportunities. As a result, many countries have opened themselves up to China's influence without taking the requisite time to assess the risks an all-access pass may bring. Belt and Road has the potential to put many countries into debt, and the scheme could see some countries owing up to half their foreign debt to China. From the perspective of Xi's legitimacy, however, the Belt and Road Initiative will not only protect the Chinese people, but also guarantee their continued economic and material growth, while Xi is able to project an image of benevolent provider by having his name inscribed as the author of the scheme, and potentially its lifelong leader. But what about guaranteeing the virtuous and moral conduct of both the emperor and his officials? For this principle, the best example would be the anti-corruption campaign carried out by the CCP under Xi's guidance over the past few years. Since his inauguration in 2012, Xi has pledged to crack down on party corruption by high-level and local officials, referred to by Xi as the Tigers and Flies. These include moral crimes, such as adultery or the use of prostitutes, to criminal activities such as taking bribes and embezzlement. Since the campaign was launched, around 2 million officials have been caught up in the sweeping investigations carried out by the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, and over 2,000 officials have been expelled from the party or convicted of a range of different crimes. This includes several high-profile party members, including Sun Jiangsai, a former member of the Politburo, the most powerful body of the Communist Party, Xu Caihou, a former high-ranking member of China's military, and another former Politburo member, Zhou Yongkang. The full name for Xi's anti-corruption campaign is the Mass Line Education Movement, which is a direct reference to basic communist ideology rooted in the party's early history. One of Mao Zedong's core tenets was that of the mass line, which is the notion that the party should continually go down to the people in order to get their support for and participation in party policy. He felt that the masses should be directly involved in deciding the future of the country, though not in leading it. Not only does this appeal to the people provide a workaround for other, more democratic forms of mass participation, but some have pointed out that the revival of Maoist-style communism is part of an attempt to reinvigorate the mass appeal of the Communist Party. 
The anti-graft campaign, combined with the Belt and Road Initiative, are both policies aimed at keeping China's GDP growing, continually increasing the material wealth of citizens, preventing any foreign encroachment or control, and showing the people that she is a benevolent father that wants the best for his children. It probably also helps that Xi's official nickname is Xi Dada, which roughly translates to Uncle Xi. Can we call this a cult of personality? Maybe, but I personally think it's a bit of a stretch. I think Xi's charisma and presence do play a role in his ability to pass such a law as abolishing presidential term limits, but at the end of the day, it's his dedication to fulfilling his mandate that truly shows the strength of his convictions. His work speaks for itself, but his personality is a nice touch. It should be pointed out that both of these plans are long term, and would certainly have to be carried out over a period longer than 10 years. If anything, the anti-graft campaign is an eternally renewing plan. China's long-ranging plans to stabilise the regime at home, whilst also bringing it closer into contact with the rest of the world, would most likely need a long-term leader at the helm. Perhaps it's for this reason that the motion to abolish term limits was even raised in the first place. Why it was passed so easily is another question. Xi has stated, implicitly or explicitly, that he does not intend to rule for life, but only for as long as necessary. However, Xi is also enacting a model that has been applied to emperors, not the rule of constitutional parliament. His campaign for legitimacy is not guaranteeing stability for stability's sake, it's a stability that matches up with Xi's very specific ideological goals of economic development and party purity. These are Xi's ideas, his vision, his plan, and so why should they not be carried out by him directly? As far as Chinese history is concerned, rule for life, or at least until voluntary retirement, is perfectly normal. As long as Xi continues to provide all the things that he has promised, the people of China will not care how long he rules for. After all, heaven is high and the emperor is far away.